Walt Richardson, welcome to my house. Welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure to be here. Nice to see you. Good to see you too, man. Um, I've been looking forward uh, to this chat, and I've done a little bit of research um, on you. And I have a couple questions that I love asking. Um, The first is... Well, first of all, your your where and how you grew up, I think, is really interesting. Mm. You grew up kind of all over the world. You were the eldest of eight mm-hmm. siblings. Your father was a staff, a sergeant, right? Well, he actually made it all the way up to chief master sergeant. Wow! And it's ironic that we're recording today because it is on this day uh, eight years ago that he uh, transitioned. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is his day. Wow. You know? Yeah. Well. The stars aligned. He's <laughs> <No>. here. <laughs> he is here. Yeah. It was a rainy day when he left. No uh, kidding. No, was, that, that's how I wrote that song about. Oh it. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a storm in the area, and uh, at the time, uh, my brother and them were bedside with him, and uh, it was about two or three in the morning. Uh, uh, he had spoken to them or something, and then there was this huge flash of uh, lightning. Mm. Uh, and and this is in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And then this uh, effect is some somewhat like a, uh, 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 what is it, downburst or a cloudburst that okay. we have out here. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But this one is on its side. And mm. and, and so uh, it's called a straight line wind. So it's like a, uh, it's like a uh, tornado on its side kind mm. of thing. Mm. That went through the town and knocked the light, the electricity off in the area wow. and everything at the wow. moment that he passed. So, wow. Yeah. Can you just give us um, a kind of a history, your history, where you grew up and, and maybe some of the music that was inspiring to you kind of coming up and, um, you know, some bands and some records and, and maybe, um, m- you know, your early musical influences. Right. Well, um Early musical influences, if I start at that angle, uh, were uh, bands like the Beatles. Um, I've always had a musical nature about m- myself, and it's in the family as well. My father uh, sings, and my mother played a little piano, and we always had a piano in the house. In fact, the first one was uh, introduced at nine when I was nine years old, and uh, it was a first communion gift. And so I started, took lessons on piano for a while, but I didn't like piano. I wanted to play the guitar Mm -hmm. because that was just the power instrument to me. So uh, growing up in different countries was um, interesting from a standpoint of seeing how people live in various areas. Um, It's kind of interesting to see a person on one side of the mountain their culture is completely different from someone on the other side of the same mountain. And it basically has to do with things like, uh, the weather, the wind, and, uh, how, um, uh, how much sunlight is on one side as opposed to the other side. And I learned, I learned what I call the, um, sweeping of the house technique. When you're in Japan, you use a certain kind of instrument to sweep the house. When you're in the Philippines, you have another instrument that sweeps the house. When you're in America, you have another looking instrument that sweeps the house. But it does the same function, but there's a lot of ways and a lot of different tools to uh, to do that. And so it kind of 
started making me ask the questions. You know, there's not just one way of looking at this big picture. Mm-hmm. It's it, it depends on a lot of things, and environment has an impact on it. In each place where we lived, you have the the cultural music or the music that's indigenous to the area. That becomes another part of what you experience when you go to different places, the sights and the sounds. Those were always interesting to me, even though at the, at the time I don't think I was processing them as a musician. I was just processing it as this is part of what it sounds like in mm-hmm. Japan. Mm-hmm. This is what it sounds like in, in Philippines. This is what it sounds like in Dover, Delaware. This is what it sounds like in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, uh, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music part came in when I saw how powerful it was and, and how much it was affecting, how it affected people. Mm-hmm. That part of um, that time on the planet, so I was born in 54, so there's a lot of changes coming down on the planet that are just now blowing up. Mm -hmm. It was a different kind of thinking. Uh, You had uh, quantum physics starting to just get Mm. out more into the mainstream, but it still seemed like it was a a distance off or a fairy tale. You still had this, what I perceive, the real separation between uh, church and science, Mm -hmm. which is now blended. And I could see the two blended very easily but you didn't talk about it that much right, <laughs> at the right. time. So the music became a way of expression with social movement. That's what it was all about. And that was that struck me to be able to bring love to the planet or bring peace to the planet in all the ways that it needed to be and still, and still this day bring healing to the planet. I admired all of the artists that were uh, moving the needle in that direction, um, R and B music, um, it's just everything mm-hmm. was, was, was to me seemed like it was moving in that direction. So those are my early years. By the time I bought my own guitar by mowing uh, lawns during the summer, <laughs> I ordered a guitar from Spiegel's mail order catalog. <laughs> it was a K guitar, and uh, that's where it all started. I didn't know how to tune it. I just pulled it out of the box and just started making noises on it. Didn't know you were supposed to tune it. Didn't know they came untuned. And so, <laughs> and so uh, I think the next thing that I remember is looking at a Mel Bay big note guitar book, you know. Uh-huh, right, right, right. Learned how to tune the guitar and started making those big note chords. The D chord, the G chord. and 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 that's where it basically started. And how old were you at this point? Well, I was I was nine when I bought the guitar. Mm-hmm. So that 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 era. But I was, yeah. you know, it's funny when we were living in Japan. Uh, that was when I was uh, about three or four years old. My brother and I used to play a game where we would take our voices and blend them together until they. Waver, you could hear it wavering, and then the waver would stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I used to call that game bad because it was the tone that we used. Uh, he was interested in it sometimes, but I always loved the way 
the voices blended. And that's where I basically started thinking about how to make up a tune that you've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's uh, one of my early childhood memories of probably beginning to write a song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned the Beatles. Did you, by any chance, see them on the Ed Sullivan show? Oh, yeah. You remember oh, yeah. that? Oh, yeah. I remember that very well. Yeah. I remember that very well. In fact, uh, we were going to, uh, we were living in Dover, Delaware at the time. And that whole era was filled with a lot of events. At, um, at the, I was at a, a, we were attending a Catholic school called Holy Cross. And all the girls were just screaming and raving about this band coming up and called the Beatles. I had no idea who they were or what they were, but they knew they were coming on to uh, uh, Ed Sullivan's show. So everybody that we knew on the base always watched the Ed Sullivan show because they always had uh, comedians and things like that. It was very entertaining. Mm-hmm. A well-done show for what I remember it for. And, and then he brought the Beatles on. And I saw them, and it was like, oh, my God. I could just feel the power coming through their music, mm-hmm. coming through the TV. And I knew that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I want to do something like that that has that same kind of effect. Now, that's running side by side with the other interest that I had and still have, which which is with science. And at the time, leukemia was a big issue uh, for childhood diseases and conditions like that. And I wanted to be, become a biochemist and discover the cure for leukemia. Um, and that's another side story mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we get into. Uh, but I love science. Mm-hmm. And so the music gave me a chance to be able to express some of the ideas and thoughts that I had about science. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of marrying those two areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were there, um, I mean, that, that part of musical history is so rich Mm. right the music that was being created by bands like the beatles and how they influenced american popular music is a big part of of that live from laurel canyon show um were there any other bands in that era that were inspiring to you during that kind of mid-60s late 60s era uh it was there was a lot of things first of all my parents were very into the music, so we had a lot of records, um, albums that would be played, especially on Sundays where it's it was a you know clean the house day, mm-hmm. and so there was music blurring on the uh, on the uh, stereo. Mm-hmm. So you had Nat King Cole, you had uh, Mom liked a lot of Cuban music, so you had a lot of those rhythms playing. Uh, Brooke Benton was the one that stood out the most for all of us kids because of his, the richness in his voice. So we were singing a lot of Brooke Benton tunes and, uh, and then whatever record we would, uh, grab onto, uh, James Brown. Um, uh, then we got into all of our 45s. So it could be anything from cream to the beach boys to, mm. uh, it was just incredible. It, it was, it was incredible. Whatever had a beat that caught us, we grab that and put it on and get crazy. So my parents had a time when it was their music that they played, and then they turned it over to us once we 
knew how to operate the <laughs> turntable with respect because right, you didn't right. mess around with them things back in that day. No. You know? no. There's a lot of things that you can do wrong Just on a turntable. Exactly. exactly. You, you break that needle, something's yeah, going to some, happen. Something's going to happen. <laughs> and the needles look like nails anyway. Right. <laughs> we had an old Vitrola that you had to crank. By no hand. kidding. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. My, from my grandmother. And those did look like nails. Right. Uh, those needles did. <laughs> so, so yeah, so music was always there. Yeah. And then, you know, you're listening to the radio and what was coming through at that time. So we got a mixture of, of, of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was, it was fun. And then we would have what was called go-go shows where we take the record player and put it somewhere uh, in the vicinity of the yard, but hit out of sight. And then we would, put a stage together, a makeshift stage and, and act like and we would pantomime to the music and right, act like right. we were playing. And so we'd have what we call go-go shows, which was a term that was popular at that time and invite all the kids to sit in the yard next to our yard. <laughs> and our mothers would put out Kool-Aid and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and we would just have a fun time. Now, let me tell you how it would come together. We'd wake up in the morning and we'd all be eating cereal or something like that and say, hey, let's have a go-go show today, Saturday, man. Let's have a go-go show. Okay, okay, let's do this. And we'd ask, Mom, can we do this? Can we use the record player? Can we use it? Yes, we want to put on a go-go show. Okay. <laughs> so then we'd get on our bicycles and we'd just ride through the uh, the housing area yeah. just Shouting from our bicycles, go, go, show at, this, at, our, at our house. Come on by at such and such time. A go, go, show, go, go, show. And so my sisters would dance while uh, while we were pantomiming uh, songs. Because we would do that anyway in the living room. So we are just bringing it out into the yard, right? Yeah. And it got to the point where my father even got excited about it. And he would give us, trying to give us little dance steps to do it. <laughs> What is this old man doing trying to give us dance steps? <laughs> you guys aren't cool. We're the ones that's cool. <laughs> right, 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 right. And this is on, this is kind of like um, on the base, right? Yeah. This okay. is on base. Yeah. And when did you, um, when did you kind of come back stateside? We were, we were, okay, so the way this all happened in the, the, in the terms of the travel, I was born at Eglin Air Force Base in 54. And then in 58, we moved to Japan, and we were on the island of Kyushu at a base called Inazuki Air Force Base. And we were there until um, 60. Now, to give you a little idea of where we were located, island of Kyushu is where the city of Nagasaki is. Oh, wow. So we were basically 10 miles from where the wow. bomb was dropped. Wow. And um, so we're living there in, uh, what was it, uh, 50, 58. Wow. It was incredible. And then from there, we came to uh, Dover, Delaware. And we were in Dover, Delaware for about five years. Then my father got orders to Vietnam. Wow. And then, so at that time, when you had what was called um, uh, isolated tour of duty, you your family wasn't going to be moving with you. So at that time, they would have uh, military families move off base. So we moved down to Florida to live with my grandmother for a while, while a house was built, being built in uh, a town nearby. So we're in Pensacola. We're having a house built in Fort Walton, which is where Eglin Air Force Base is and where I was born. So we're basically returning home. My father did a tour 
in Vietnam. And when he got out of Vietnam, he did a, a year in Dover, Delaware. And rather than all of us move back up to Dover, he decided to put in for an assignment at Clark Air Base in the Philippines because he had gone there uh, for um, R&R mm-hmm. while he was in Vietnam. So he a year later, he got that assignment, and that's how we moved to the Philippines. And from there, that's where I finished high school and graduated. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's 50 years ago um, mm-hmm. this year. Wow. And in a couple of weeks, we're having a reunion in Florida, Fort Home Beach, Florida, of all places, uh, for the graduating class of 72. We came out of, uh, from there, I came back to Pensacola, Florida, and went to Pensacola Junior College. Then I transferred from junior college to ASU mm-hmm. and have been in, every, you know, when, when I graduated from ASU, I decided I was going to retire. <laughs> <laughs> so I retired. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to tell you something. One. One of the understandings of living a military life, especially at the time and era that we did, our separation of groups of people in our mind was military people, dependents, you call them, or civilians. And so we lived on base and we lived off base in in all of the areas that we were stationed in. And one of the things that we all enjoyed was the life of a military dependent. Mm. It's a completely different culture. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we uh, had issue with, and some to this day, is becoming a civilian. Mm. And there's studies out about what it is to leave the military life and come into civilian life. Mm. And that was my cultural shock, was finally becoming a civilian. The reason I went to college one of the main reasons is while you were in college, you could care, you could keep your military uh, dependent status. Mm. So you could still shop on base. You could go mm. on base for uh, some medical attention. And you could also travel outside the United States for free. If you were wow. going to, uh, like I went back to the Philippines because my parents were still there. And so I flew from, uh, from Travis Air Force Base in California to Clark Air Base for free. Mm. Uh, you, you traveled Space A, and <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> what is Space A? I don't know. Space available. Oh, got you. And there's four categories of that. There's, uh, uh, and, and I would fall in the third category. And so if, um, if there was nobody in the first category and nobody in the second category and nobody in the third category, then your chances were mm-hmm. good for getting on any flight that was going in that direction. Wow. Almost on anything, but you just try to put you on a, uh, a, a, a cargo plane or something that has some seats in it. Right. <laughs> That'd be good. <laughs> yeah. Seat would be nice. But sometimes what they were carrying, uh, they could only let military people be on because it, it, you know, they didn't want anything to happen and right. you know, it could be pretty serious. So we finally, after two weeks of waiting in a terminal, okay. <laughs> the base commander had come through and this is when I was traveling back as a, as a freshman in college said, uh, came through and 
he ordered up about three or four C5As because that's how many people were sitting in the wow. terminal. Oh, wow. And we went out on the flight that was out late that night. And it's pretty interesting to fly in those planes because it's like flying in a, a warehouse. Right. Three-story warehouse almost. Yeah. And you, when you go into the, the, the aircraft, you're walking past tanks and jeeps and helicopters right, and all right. that kind of thing. Yeah. And then you climb a stairwell that has a very steep angle to it to the tail end, end of the plane. And there's about 72 seats back there all facing the, ta- facing the tail. Uh-huh. And one window at the door. And that's it. <laughs> oh, man. What a trip. <laughs> yeah. And that's an 18-hour flight. Going backwards, oh sitting backwards. <laughs> so the story goes is brought to you by Santan Brewing Company, located right here in Chandler, Arizona. They have a new event space called Santan Gardens. Oh my! It's located at 495 East Warner Road in Chandler, and they're planning some events. And I have one. Maybe you should mark your calendar. Friday, May 13th, 5 p.m. Tom Petty's Wildflowers Tribute. Guess who's in that band? It's your guy, B-Skills. And a bunch of my uh, dear friends. We're going to be playing Tom Petty's Wildflowers record front to back and playing some of his hits. Join us Friday, May 13th at 5 p.m. Find out more, santanbrewing.com forward slash events. What was Tempe and ASU like in the in the early 70s? Well, it was very, very different from what it is mm-hmm. right now. In fact, I don't think anybody knew such thing as Arizona even having a college, <laughs> much less Tempe was a name that a lot of folks had... Um, uh, trouble pronouncing because people thought of Phoenix and that was it. Didn't mm-hmm. Think about anything else out here, right? Well, and what made you decide to go to ASU then? Of all the, I mean, of all the places, I was uh, sitting in the library at uh, Pensacola Junior College, figuring out where I'm going to go. And I'd looked at some places in Colorado, some places in Northern California, Southern California, and the out-of-state tuition what I thought at that time was just crazy. ASU, I had some friends from the Philippines that were going to NAU. Mm -hmm. And so we were in in, uh, communication uh, quite a bit. And so I decided to just try ASU out in terms of uh, looking at different colleges. And their out-of-state tuition was just like below the radar. Mm It's like, oh, this is cool. So I had a I had a national direct loan that could cover both years. Hmm. And so I said, I'll, I'll go here. And, um, and when I was flying into sky Harbor, there was terminal one and terminal two. I'm flying, we're circling in and it's August, uh, 16th or something like that. Four in the four in, four in the afternoon. And it's a hundred and something degrees. The pilot is announcing that a hundred, it's a hundred. I've never met. Did he say 100? Yeah. It's 108 degrees. 108 degrees. What? What am 
am I doing? <laughs> I was looking at this dust bowl and I said, I think I just made the biggest mistake of my life. We landed and they stopped the plane, you know, they taxi and they stopped the plane. But we're still like, it seems like a mile away from <laughs> the building. <laughs> Stop, I guess they just stopped randomly, you know, yeah, it's like yeah, on yeah. the tarmac. So we climb out of that thing and I hit that tarmac and I go, oh my God, this is hot. Yeah. My first stop when I walked, walked into the building of Terminal 2 was a water fountain. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I went basically from water fountain to water fountain for about a week out here. I got in a cab and uh, go to ASU. And it wasn't until we actually turned on to the campus where the dorm was, because I stayed in Bessie Dormitory. Right as you turn on, and Bessie is located right next to um, uh, Grady Cabbage across the street. Mm-hmm. That was the first green, a blade of green grass that I saw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this place is like, what is this? Yeah. And, um, but it just seemed like as I was talking to people, it seemed like everybody was you know, friendly. It reminded me almost like an an Air Force base where Hmm. folks were just chatting it up with anybody. It seemed like you could have a conversation as if you knew that person all their life. Mm -hmm. Most of the people were from uh, the Midwest, a lot of folks from Iowa um, at that time. And to this day, some of those people are still good friends that I met on the, the first two days Wow. here yeah and that, that was really nice the skies were so blue and going to campus i just go into classes in the morning i would just look at the sky and just see how intensely blue it was, was mm-hmm. oh my god this is so cool mm-hmm. and i basically just lived on the campus i went off campus a couple of times uh to uh, to various events i didn't have a car at the time i also um an ra one of the RAs on our floor, we, did, we were, it was, a, it was a Friday night. We were at this place called Friday and Saturdays, which was a club on Scottsdale Road where they had uh, rock music on one level and country music on the next level. Hmm. And it's a topless bar now. I think it's called the Cabaret. <laughs> <laughs> we were in there, you know, having some beers and stuff like that. And he says to me, he says, well, you ever seen the Grand Canyon yet? And I go, no, I haven't. He says, you want to go? I said, sure. I said, when? He said, right now. No kidding. <laughs> so we went back to the dorm room, got our jackets, and he has one of those brown uh, uh, Bonnevilles. Uh-huh. We hopped in that thing and took off. Oh, my God. It was amazing. But it was in January. It was probably one of the coldest days uh-huh. and windiest days. And... Um, overcast and the wind was so strong at that time you could go up to every edge Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm, the canyon mm -hmm. if you got blown over nobody would know right 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 um but and so we went to all the different spots cool it was so cool i knew i was hooked on arizona when we got to the point where right before you know you get to sunrise um that uh, rest up sunset rest stop okay yeah, yeah, yeah. You're coming up those switchbacks from uh, uh, Black Canyon yep. City, and you get up, 
And just as you get into those that upper area, how the whole thing yes. opens up, you yeah. know, the higher chaparral and everything, it like every time, even to this day, when I we move to the get to that spot, there's this opening yeah. inside of me that happens and I go, Wow, it's just, just yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. But at that time there was no there was nothing in New River. Huh. There was um nothing after um the um the mall that we had, what is it, Metro Center. Uh-huh, Metro right. Center was the newest thing. <laughs> when you went past Metro Center, what is that, at Bell or something like that? Something close? North of Bell. Yeah. But yeah, I get, yeah, in that area in for area. sure. Yeah. It was nothing mm-hmm. until you got all the way into Flagstaff. Wow. And there was a, um, I think it was a, a, a Dunkin' Donut or some kind of um, ice cream shop. Uh-huh. It was all the way in Flagstaff. <laughs> You didn't see anything. Yeah. On the on no no buildings, no nothing. Yeah. So it made the trip to Flagstaff look like it was really a lot further away. <laughs> right. Than right. Was. Right. There was nothing. The the road was a little bit narrow. They've widened it in since yeah. that whole time. But that was amazing just to go to that transition. So Flagstaff became my getaway mystical town. Right. Because of the higher elevation, all the pine trees. And yeah. Everybody that I was running around with at that time were hippies. Uh-huh. So I would stay at their places, and they all had crystals in the in the uh, windows. And uh-huh. in the morning, all that light coming through all those prisms was throwing all these rainbows everywhere. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Man, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> were you um, were you making music at ASU? Yes, I was. Um, it was funny because. Um, like I said, my primary reason for going to college was to extend my military benefits. It wasn't to try to get a degree. I, I, I didn't. I didn't want to drop the program and then just become a civilian. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. so that was my drive. When I got here, they um, they signed me up with the administration, paid off everything, and I had some cash. In return, at about five hundred bucks or something cash, so I got my money and I went over to a uh, music shop that was right across the campus at that time, Miguel's Music Center, and I bought a guitar. And so I spent I spent my college career sitting in the stairwell of best C dormitory because I had the best acoustics playing my guitar, learning and playing the guitar. And there was a guy who was in the, he was on the floor below me. He was a big Cat Stevens fan. So he had Cat Stevens songbooks of which he gave me at the time. And I still have those. Wow. And one of the uh, uh, hall assistants that was one of the guys that was running the whole place, he played guitar. So I would go down. He had a little apartment down there in in, uh, in, in Bessie. I'd go down there with him. He had a really nice Martin guitar. And we would play all these. He'd play, put records on, and we'd learn these songs. And he turned me on to Jerry Riopelle. Oh, yeah. And he told me about who he was and all of that. And it wouldn't be until, like, maybe 30 or 40 years later before I met Jerry. I just knew him from his... Um, his his albums, you wow, know? wow, and so um, yeah, we were out playing some Dan Fogelberg and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, mm-hmm. 
just learning songs, mm-hmm. just have this backlog of songs. Then open mic night started becoming popular here. And after I graduated and retired, I started going to uh, open mic nights where it was, I think it was called Hooters at the time, but it's called the Vine over there mm-hmm. on Apache. Okay. Uh, and it wasn't even the Hooters that was the, 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 the franchise that right. was out now. It was just right. something else like it. So, yeah, we used to sit in there and do open mics, and that's how I started getting known in, in, in the Valley. Otherwise, I was basically going to friends' houses. We'd have uh, dinners on Friday or Saturday night and bring guitars and sit there and sing and, and, and that kind of thing. That's what was going on a lot. Mm-hmm. Go over to someone's house, someone pick you up, give you a ride, you go there and sit in, it'd be a bunch of musicians, and then we all take turns singing songs and all that songwriters in the round kind right, of stuff. Right. That's what that's what was happening. Yeah. And um, I had no, I had no inkling of making a living by playing music. I just enjoyed it. Was wondering how I was going to be able to enjoy it as much as I want, and then still try to find a job. Uh huh. Uh huh. And uh, that kind of thing. Actually. I think I, I started getting gigs before I really had a, a, a job. It was kind of neck and neck in that one because I was working at Denny's for a while, um, um, busting suds over there mm-hmm. down the street from where I live. And so that was, then things just started growing from there. I met my first guitar player for Morningstar mm-hmm. at Denny's and he was, uh, he was busting tables and <laughs> I was washing dishes and somebody said, hey, you know, Rich, uh, Rich plays guitar. I said, you do? He's, he said, yeah. I said, where do you live? He lived across the street. So <laughs> after work, we'd go over there smelling like maple syrup and play, play. <laughs> I can only imagine. Oh my God. Yeah. If you work at Denny's or right. places like that, that's right. what you're going to be right. scraping off those plates is a <laughs> lot of maple syrup, baby, and pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> Rich was involved with his father's business, which was real estate. And so he was doing the music on the side. He had just graduated from high school. I just graduated from college. I was open to anything. You know, in fact, at the same time, I was still working at Denny's. There was a opportunity to, uh, uh, to work with uh, a guy who was starting a painting business. And, uh, then, um, I was working uh, at Miguel's Music Center for a while, um, and so I had painting jobs. So I was on the gig with paint spots on mm-hmm. my elbow and mm-hmm. <laughs> all of that. So did that for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. So the story goes is also sponsored by my gals, the Engstrom team. What? This is the mother-daughter real estate team associated with Coldwell Banker Realty. They've been selling in the Phoenix area for 25 years. They know. They know what's up. They know this market. Maybe you want to buy. Maybe you want to sell. Maybe you're just curious as to the process. Talk to Becky, Kate, and Carrie. They're going to walk you through. They're going to treat you like family. They treat me like family. Give them a call. If you have any questions about this, 480 Two five zero one nine three six, or find them online engstromteam.com that's E-N-G S-T-R-O-M team 
com. Talk to my talk to my ladies. At what point do you kind of become a full time musician? Well, it's funny you should say that because <laughs> at the time there was this place called uh, Tony's Italian Food, which became uh, uh, Native New Yorker, mm-hmm. and I was sitting on the bed at uh, edge of the bed after I'd counted up the amount of money I made on the gig and I had my paychecks from what I was getting from McGill's at the time. And I was looking at it. I said, I had more cash in my hand from gigging mm-hmm. than I had from a two week paycheck, right. of just one or two hours and here and there, right. and that, you know, and, and getting paid only two weeks as opposed to getting paid right after the gig and right. having your money straight right there in your hands. You right. Know? Right. So I just kind of leaned back and I said, you know what? I looked at the two piles of money. (laughs) Easy decision. It was an easy decision. Easy decision. I think I'm going to do this here. This cash thing is looking pretty good. (laughs) So uh, I started doing that. And, you know, I'll tell you, working with people that are running business and then going ahead and going onto the... uh, music making money and living through the music i i learned a lot about business Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i probably learned more about business in the music industry than i would have learned going to a business yeah school right and yeah i mean it's like a crash course in being an entrepreneur you're a small business owner exactly yeah and the quicker you learn that right the easier it is to play music right If you go around with the idea of the starving artist thing, that's just not going to work. No. Because you're you're putting a mindset on yourself. Mm -hmm. And that mindset is also going to translate through how you relate to people, how you talk to club owners Mm -hmm. and all of that. And there's always this big frustration with club owners where people have these, uh, they're always trying to cheat you out of money. They're all, you know, I was in that, I was in that dialogue uh, for a little bit, but I didn't stay there because I have a military background. Right. So there's a, there's a certain kind of discipline that right, uh, right. you have to bring to the table that I saw a lot of musicians weren't bringing to the table at all. In fact, if anything, I saw more people wanting to get something as if they were entitled to it because they played an instrument. Right. It's like, mm, I don't know about that one yeah. right there. Right. And, and so I'll, I'll take you back to uh, the first time I saw the Beatles play. And for a long time, whenever I would see um, films of people playing Jimi Hendrix and all of that, my, my feeling was they're, they are successful because they're good and they put the time in to playing right it took me a long time to understand the business behind it and when i looked back i think it was just maybe a few years ago i was looking back at that uh, at that uh, ed sullivan show Mm -hmm. and i saw the business side of it Mm -hmm. and i thought wow they were that was part of the success of them because Mm -hmm. they had they had the cohesive look Right. They had the look, they had the brand. And I didn't understand what branding meant. Right. They had the brand. They had the sound. They came in there. They took care of business, hit it and quit it in so many minutes, and bam, we're out of there. Right. Whereas what I was caught up with in the 
when and probably everybody else looking at it from the audience side is oh they got long hair wow the music sounds good wow they're all dressed up in the same thing and that's really cool and all this and that and everything but then they moved the brand out as time went by um when drugs came in onto the scene, right, right, the, the yeah. brand was different, but they were still, you know, the hair was longer, the 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 clothing was diverse but colorful, but right. still fit with the the whole marketing kind of thing. Right, right. When you get to understanding that, then you realize it's a real big picture. Yeah. But the biggest part of it is that consistency in your sound, and you only get to that by practice. Mm-hmm. You got to put the time in. You just can't pick up a guitar and be cute and think that, oh, yeah, just because I'm, you know, I'm here and I'm playing and few of my friends like my songs. I'm going to I'm going to make it to the top. Right. Mm, No, it doesn't work like that. Right. And then you you start, I guess, being fortunate enough to roll through the 60s with everybody and start hearing the backstories of the music industry itself. Then you got another issue to deal with, with exactly what everybody was going through and how a lot of people weren't getting paid and right. And when they were getting paid, how they were, it was how they were getting paid and and stuff. And it's like, man, it, it was like, it got roguish in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, in there. I think that, I think that when the music industry realized you can, you know, you can really monetize a band then they realized, oh, well, if, you know, there's a way that we can take advantage of this. I mean, not, and not even necessarily in a malicious way, but we can monetize this new sound. We can monetize a look. We can brand, you know, we can monetize this brand. And then when, you know, big money starts rolling in and record company execs are filling their pockets and, you know, let's let's start churning things out. This is an industry now, a proper industry, you know, just like any other industry you know well in 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 that that's exactly true and when you're in a capitalistic system uh competition is um, a natural part of that Mm -hmm. but you still have what came in there is the dark element of selfishness and greed and that's what started uh tearing things apart Mm -hmm. um when you had the 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 payola mm-hmm, right that would come in there you now you're almost destroying the artist right by giving them or enabling them to have access to uh, their drug of choice right rather than in paying them or right. tell them hey i'll give you this first case of whiskey and it'll be sitting there right there in your room when you get there and da 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 we'll get all this other stuff squared away later on mm-hmm. it's like that's kind of starting to get shady right and uh and and people in that era were were losing their lives. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and some of the psychedelic experiences because it, it it was taken to the extreme that it was taken. Right, there was a lot of trauma on the planet from the Vietnam War, and that was a big part of the social movement was how long that war was going on. Um, so I remember it started. Well, we got more involved in the war when I was in the sixth grade. Um, It wasn't long after we were in the war, in my sixth grade year, where I remember one of the teachers coming into the classroom saying that uh, one of the guys that sat a couple rows over, his name was Daryl Dardot, his father was a pilot, 
had been shot down. And I remember Daryl, you know, slumping his head. And that's a sixth grade. Wow. So my father had just gotten orders to go to that place. Yeah. And communication wasn't like it was today. Right. There was, you know, a letter took eight days, five to eight days to go across the ocean. And you only saw things on the news. And that's why it became uh, what was known as a living room war. Mm-hmm. Six o'clock in the evening, you'd listen to Walter Conkright or somebody. And they were giving you the uh, angle of the war from almost as if it was uh, a scorecard. Mm-hmm. They would tell you how many Viet Cong were killed, how many Viet Cong were wounded, how many U.S. troops were in. And the numbers of Viet Cong to troops, uh, American troops and that kind of thing. The VC numbers were higher and the uh, American servicemen, service people number was lower. And so you were thinking, oh, yeah, we killed more of them than they killed of us or something like that mm-hmm. or captured and all that. It was right. kind of interesting. And that's playing in the background right. from um, sixth grade all the way through to um, when I was a junior in high school. Wow. So we thought for sure that war would be over. And here it is in my junior year, I have to sign up for the draft because that was still going on. You had to go wow. or leave. And that was, that's, what was, that's what was pushing and driving all the music, all the mm-hmm. anti-government uh, uh, things. And I was in that um, uh, philosophy of no war, yet at the same time, my father is, uh, you know, in the military He's not push. He's he's a, the most peaceful person you know, uh, and he had already spent a time in Vietnam. And when he had come back, he was a different person. Really? Oh yeah, he was completely different. So when it came time for me to sign up for the draft, he took me down there to uh, the office, and he was standing over my shoulder while I was filling out the draft card. And there's a part in there where you can sign up as a conscientious objector mm-hmm, right and that's where i was signing my name on and yeah i could feel him over my shoulder and i kept thinking he was probably thinking that's my boy standing up for his right because he was not in he was not in favor of what he saw after he was in nam mm-hmm. and 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 that kind of thing and nam was probably for us as military people it was a very interesting war because we saw these people in Nam as heroes, but they came back to the States as hated, right. as baby killers. And right. so those vets were getting treated horribly when they were coming into yeah. uh, some of their hometowns. And, and they, some of them have survived being in Vietnam, going through all that stuff, right. and then getting shot in their local bar when they returned home. Yeah. So that was the kind of stuff we were going through. And then on top of that, you had all the major assassinations that were going on on the planet from Kennedy to uh, the Kennedys, Malcolm X, uh, 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 Martin Luther King. Um, uh, it, it was just like, it seemed like when Kennedy was shot, the world shut down uh-huh. and it hadn't been the same since then. Right. Because nobody could thought, nobody thought, well, wow, how did that happen? You know? Right. And then one soon after that, you know, his brother, uh, um, then, you know, Martin and it was, it was it was it was crazy. Now yeah. and then you had the riots that happened right. in the cities, and the whole all the racial tension. The the racial tension then to me 
was very, very intense, and it was very brutal. But you can capture it all on film. That's how brutal it was. When the things that have been going on for the last couple of years, there have been some really horrible events. But the brutality, the level of brutality, was different from the level of brutality we saw coming up. So we thought we had moved through all of that, right. and then we come through what's going on right now. And so it's a broader sense now because you have the Internet and you have cell phones, and they can capture things in real time and send them back to uh, different people in different parts of the world. But I will tell you this, even with that, there's one element missing when you see um, things in real time coming from other areas. If you're standing there and looking at it, it's going to be completely different from if you're anywhere else, even around the block from it and looking at it. And that was one of the things that I learned about being in the Philippines and there would be incidents going down, assassinations in, in the, in the Philippines. And they would read out a different way in the news. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just from the angle that people are, are talking now. Are they making it up? No, they aren't making it up. They're just speaking at it from the angle that they're seeing it. Mm. But all of us standing there seeing it, all seeing it from our own different angles. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's telling you something wrong, but it's, it is telling you that it is, that's just one way of looking at it. Right. And, but if you're there, you're going to see a whole another aspect that you can't even capture on film. Right. Right. And it's just, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that it, it, so that drove me down. Uh, that drove me down to a place of how do we figure this out? And it seems like the rabbit hole is always coming back to what's going on inside of us. And that's how we see the world is by what's going on inside of us. So if we have all kinds of mixed messages going through us, then we're going to see the world filter through those mixed messages. Mm -hmm. So music became now for me, a path or a way of life. Hmm. So if I'm going to write something, I know I'm chanting something. And if I'm chanting something, that means I'm putting that, that message in me as well as I'm putting it on into the field. Mm -hmm. And that's going to affect people. And that's the part of music that I saw early on. And so I always wanted to hold out more respect to people who were conscious of that and they seem to be different artists than people who are just popular. And it's been that way ever since. And it seems like the music industry went to the area of what was popular and kind of sidestepped anybody really getting to knowing self because when you go into self-awareness, it, it flips the playing field because you can't... One of the things I'm really learning... You really can't lie to the universe and you really can't lie to your nervous system. Mm. Mm. And to me, there's a nervous system of the universe and it ties into our nervous system. So whenever we're doing anything, thinking that nobody's going to find out about it, we're actually starting uh, a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the more you do that, the greater that feedback loop becomes. And then it starts trailing, uh, 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 distorting your own uh, amount of 
or interrupting your own amount of uh, peace of mind, mm-hmm, peace mm-hmm. of heart, because the universe can't operate outside of what is. We have free will to be able to create and imagine, but when we start creating and imagining within the alignment of what the universe is doing, then we become a different being. And you cannot experience that until you do it. And that decision comes from inside. And so um, uh, we've got this great masquerade of a world happening in one level. And then we have the universe operating as it's going to be. And Mm -hmm. we're in that. Mm -hmm. And we keep coming up across the same lessons over and over again until we finally say, hmm, must be more more to this. Mm -hmm. And so music became a journey of me trying to stay as closely in touch with universal laws Mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, be able to deliver it without judgment to others if they're operating outside of that. Mm-hmm. That's how I try to find lyrics. And then the universe is nothing but information. And when I, songs come or moments come, I feel like that's information that I'm able to pick up on because I happen to be open to that v- vibrational source at that moment. But man, trying to write it down is always the challenge. And mm-hmm. that's what keeps driving me back to songwriting. Is I could see it in my head, I can feel it in my heart, but did I get it on paper? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it comes close sometimes, and then sometimes it's really far off, but you still sing the songs anyway, because for somebody, even the ones that songs that are far off, they're spot on for somebody. Right, right. That's the beauty, yeah. right? They're spot on. That's the beauty of art. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. A um, painting, a sculpture, or anything yeah. left behind, done with the intention of trying to be, do it the best you can, it's going to speak to somebody. Right. Right. With your hand in mine, we can walk through any space and time. Leave. This crawl space with this narrow mind We can't deny What we've been searching for for all our lives Yes, you and I With love wings we can fly We've had our share of avatars We've had our share of battle scars Not any one man's point of view Can keep a whole world from the truth We can fly, we can fly With love wings we can fly We can fly, we can fly into the clear blue open skies Love Wings is a a song that basically speaks about uh, the signal the electromagnetic signal that 
our heart sends into the field around us. There's an institute called Heart Math in San Francisco, and they've been studying uh, the heart-brain connection for probably about 30, 40 years or something of this nature. And they have some very interesting um, statistics and measurements. One of the most, uh, uh, the, the song Love Wing, again, speaks about the, the knowledge that they have of how, how the, uh, the heart sends the, how it sends the electromagnetic field, uh, signal into the field and how far away it can be detected. Mm. Not only that, how it affects other hearts that are sending signals into the field and how information gets passed on from the brain through the heart into the field into other people and in terms of uh, trying to understand how we get information that seems telepathic and, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Some interesting uh, experiments in that way. And just to, just to um, kind of talk about a, a one aspect of one small experiment is watching people, um, hooking people up brain waves and heart waves and the whole thing. And what and the, that person watching uh, pictures flash up on the screen in front of them. And they're uh, noticing what the heart and the brain are reacting to. And so they're, uh, the pictures are flashing pretty fast and there'll be like flowers and scenery and beautiful things. And then all of a sudden something pretty traumatic or, 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 significant or something like that that's completely on contrast to the picture that was right before. And then when they look back at the measurements going on, they notice spikes whenever there was a a change in uh, the information that was coming in, the pictures that they were seeing, that the subject was seeing. But they also noticed that from the heart there was a pre-spike hmm. before that picture showed up. Hmm. And so what they started to get interested in, what about this pre-spike? How's, how's this? It's almost as if the heart knows what's coming next and is preparing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. itself for it or preparing you for it. So they took the experiment even further from the part that I understand, and they would have another person in another room hooked up to the same machinery in the same way and the other person observing in a separate room hooked up in the same way and they're reading the, uh, uh, going through the same experiment, watching the brain wave, the heart waves. And they're noticing that that pre-spike is showing up with the person who's watching it. But mm. they also notice it was showing up and the person's just sitting in the room relaxing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Crazy. Yeah, really crazy. So it gets even crazier. Um, when you, there are um, geosatellites set up around the world to measure uh, tsunamis and earthquakes and um, uh, volcanic uh, uh, eruptions and things like that. They noticed that when he started looking back at those records, there was a pre-spike there too, mm-hmm. as if 
you know, this before the tsunami hit uh, that was over there, um, uh, over in Indonesia in that area, they noticed a pre-spike before that. Um, and it was coming like from the animals and all of those that registered something was coming before the thing was coming. Interesting. But not only that, they started turning to events and they saw a pre-spike right before the first plane hit the, uh, hit the towers wow. in 9-11. So all of this information um, is um, going down the rabbit hole of who we are, uh, wh- why are we here, and where do we go afterwards. And to what I know, to the extent that I know, and there's a lot of people further down the rabbit hole than myself in understanding this, it seems like the best way I can put this is there is an unseen component of who we are that exists independently and is connected with us that is able to, let's put it this way, we're transmitting through it and it's transmitting through us. And it's giving us the ability or seems like it's giving us an ability to understand that our thoughts are things and they're doing things to us simultaneously as they're doing things to people around us. So if you hold anger for some reason, for whatever feeling you feel justified for it, there's a, there's a, a field of anger coming out and it's affecting the molecules in the wall. It's affecting the plant. It's affecting everything you walk by. Mm. And when you get a chance to understand that it's doing that, then it gives you the ability to understand that we're something more than what we have always known ourselves to be. And this is the most interesting part about being alive at this point in time, Brian, I'll tell you, is now we have the information with us in real time of what where we've been through and how do we get to that place of peace and what I'm realizing. And I think the message is already out there in a lot of ways is we're not going to get it by changing things outside of us anymore. Mm-hmm. That's gotten us to this point. You can't fix something with the same tool that broke it. Right. Right. So, now it's turning into us, and that's the question I just mentioned earlier before. Who, who are we really? And not from the standpoint of old ways and religions and philosophies, but a new understanding. And that's what we're in the middle of. What is that? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how awesome is it? And I'm, fi- I'm finding out that if there is any kind of original sin, it would be that all of us walking around with a kind of a, a timid space of how awesome we really are and we're afraid of it mm. because it will change everything. When I say everything, I mean everything. Mm. <laughs> it's like, uh, when people step into these uh, places, whether they're guided to it through meditation or, or, or uh, they, they find a way, they stumble onto it and everything, and it's by going into the heart, blood pressure, 
tumors, things almost actually disappear in real time. Mm. And it's being measured um, where chanters are around a body, healers are around a body, and they're looking at a scan of a tumor cell in the body while the chanters start chanting, and they're just giving the message that um, of, of, of the healing having already taken place. They're not bringing any message that the cancer is bad uh, or anything like that. They're just talking about the, the healing itself. And then they're watching the tumor shrink in real time. It's funny that you mention um, chanting because I feel like that song has an element of yeah. chant yeah, to it. it. Is. You know, it it's is. like this hypnotic right. chanting aspect of mm-hmm. that tune. Right. You know. That's what I look for in every song that I write, because that's what I see as effective in the artists that become aware of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Bob Marley's music, you know, I, for years it was just about the lyrics, and it was about how the f- uh, the, the form of music had this uh, thing that captured you. But then when you look back at the evolution of the songs up until where you know his death. They didn't really change much in there. They kept the same fundamental things in line because that's all you needed. And then it starts building a a, a rhythm that goes Mm -hmm. out into the field and the people. And you'll always see it at every, uh, you see it all at a concert. There's a point in time where all the audience is in a wave Mm -hmm. and that's called synchronicity. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like the artist is responsible for that and needs to pay attention to it because if you're putting lyrics out and while people are in that synchronicity and then just leave them go, they will walk out into the world either feeling the anger that was with it or, or, or something like this. But if you're, if you're aware of what you're doing and then you give them the power of saying, you know, you can do this anytime you want, mm-hmm. either by remembering this experience or finding something that does it for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then remembering how you got there. And with that, it changes how they feel. The people sitting in your audience, you've heard it, uh, and they go, wow, that just made my entire week. I was this way and that way and blah, 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 but came here and all that disappeared and they, they're thanking you. Mm-hmm. And I always, always kind of smile at that because all I did was prepare the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The forgetting is what they did. Mm. And mm. if they remember that they can forget the thing, they will find a way back to that, even if they have to play your song or somebody, their mm-hmm. favorite song. It's that process of forgetting uh, that they find a way to it. Then when they find their way to it, they're having an experience that's personal. It's not the same way as somebody else listening to the same song, their way might be in a whole different song. Mm-hmm. But when they get to it, the thing that they try to express always seems to be something that's uplifting because what's happening, the brain is making a different cocktail. They're moving out of one area of the brain, a brain wave into another brain wave that starts aligning everything in the body and the heart and, and the body, the brain and the heart when you practice going into that state over and over again, there's so many beneficial things that come out of it physically. 
mm-hmm. but you keep going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> and it's almost like feel the dreams, mm-hmm. build it, and they will come. <laughs> <laughs> That's the daunting part of the right, whole thing. <laughs> right. And uh, I think there's a part of us that knows that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Way, 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 way in the background. Yeah, right, right. Um, so I have some questions for you. Okay. I said on Facebook, if you could ask Arizona singer-songwriter Walter Richardson a question about his music, what would it be? Uh, Jim Bachman wants to know, Jim. Yeah, when is the new record going to drop? That's been the, that's a great question, Jim. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you my number and I'll, yeah. keep, you, I'll keep you updated on that's that That's the one, universal man. question, Oh, my man. God. You we know? started this thing three years ago thinking it was only going to take us a a few months, yeah. but then everything from shut down, blah, 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 and everything happened. But it was a blessing in disguise because it gave us a chance to stay with the project long enough to hear things that we wouldn't have heard right. in that first year and then things that we wouldn't have heard until the second year. So to answer the question, we are at the tail end of, of putting together the last uh, song, which is a, a tune called Hap- What Happens to Me. And that's just basically tweaking the voice. Mm-hmm. And everything else, it's going to be a five-song a five song EP. Mm-hmm. Everything else on it sounds amazing. Cool. Where did you record really, it? We recorded it at Three Leaf okay. Recording Studios. Yeah. Are you familiar with them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, amazing work. Um, Gigi Gonaway was, uh, well, Gigi and Sean Cooney, mm-hmm. they operate almost um, simultaneously between engineer and producer. It's an interesting relationship that they have. But they're a team, and they want to bring people to the level with their art and songwriting uh, that, that, that is just, um, it, it's wonderful. And it's a, it's a learning curve, too, because it's different. I found it was different from the way I've recorded up until this. Uh, I had to learn... Um, some techniques and, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and things. And then uh, it was, but when I look back on it, oh my God, it has helped me out so much. Yeah. So I'm hoping like within the next couple of months. Great. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Hector Ortiz wants to know your favorite memory about Mill Avenue. Oh my God. Wow. There's so many of them. I bet. Oh my God. That's I mean, you know, one. I'm talking to a cat who has a star on Mill Avenue. <laughs> I'm talking. I'm talking to a local legend with a star in Tempe, right on the sidewalk. Let's go. Let's go. Wow. There's... Is it January 18th? January 18th was the. Um, that's Walt Richardson Day. Yeah, that was uh, because that's when we were holding my uh, uh, 60th birthday and induction into the Arizona oh, Music yeah. and Entertainment Hall of Fame. Man. And so uh, a, book, a proclamation was read that that would be uh, Walt Richardson Day. How cool is and, that? And it happens to be just a few days um, uh, before my birthday, which is on the 21st of, uh, of, of January. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And we. we, we Celebrated in very low key. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> it's usually gone before we, you know, that was a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah. Let's celebrate. <laughs> or it's coming up. Yeah, this is May and that's January. Let's celebrate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I never answered the question. Yeah. So I guess one of, that was a, a pretty interesting uh, moment and memorable for me when we were installing the plaque. 
but the other times go back to, um, and be, while I was in college, um, just strolling up and down Mill Avenue with friends and the, uh, the, the girlfriend that I had at the time, um, her and I, um, walking up and down Mill Avenue, um, in the evening, just those are just, you know, priceless right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we took her vehicle. We could, at that time you could, you could, it wasn't that difficult, but it wasn't smart. We could drive up a mountain. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. We got stuck up there trying to turn the vehicle around. <laughs> she had a Chevy Vega and it was like, oh my God, we were about ready to roll that thing down the side of the mountain trying to turn around up there. Oh, I don't know who's, I, it might've been my idea. <laughs> <laughs> to drive up there in the first place. <laughs> uh, Dino wants to know if there's going to be a Morningstar band reunion. Um, that's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have that happen. It seems like uh, every time we have gotten to that, close to that place, one member hasn't been able to make it or has been out of town and everything. I would love to see that happen, but I don't know. Yeah. Right now, uh, they happen at like barbecues where we happen to be in town they come over we all come over and we'll sit around uh later on after eating and play music and it's just like magic is close but uh an actual morning star reunion we'll see yeah it's not out of the question as a possibility how how long was that band together i think, I think we had a, about a 17 year run damn I think it was about a seventeen-year run. That's that's a long time, and you guys were touring, right? And and yeah, for the good part of that, we weren't touring. And then uh, the the last three quarters of the uh, time, uh, we did tour quite a bit, and and that was just massive amount of touring right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and playing all original stuff. Like, were you the? Yeah, we were. We were doing mainly originals. Mm-hmm. We would always mix a little tune in uh, other tunes in that uh were familiar sure but for the most part everything was original and were there multiple songwriters or was it primarily you songwriting it was it was multiple songwriters Mm -hmm. uh uh, uh, at the time rich mcdonald and uh, al ortiz were a writing team and then i wrote i would bring my tunes to to the tune to the to the table and so between all of us and the three of us that's how the music uh was 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 put together mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um doug says he loves your version of brown eyed girl with the whole band and he used to have it on cassette he wonders if he can find a recording of it you know i think that i think i might have a recording of that uh he said he had it on cassette because we did it also on a cd as well and i don't know if it's the same version but i have to double check but uh, we can contact each other and yeah. find out. Do you do you do the Spotify thing? Do you do like digital platform streaming stuff? You know, I think some uh, of of my stuff is on there, but it's not. Uh, it, it's put up there by Fervor Records oh, rather sure. than myself. Mm-hmm. So they have it on streaming platforms, but that's not very many songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really used the platforms that much yet. How can people get access to your recorded material? Um, they're, uh, my website. Okay. And they can download from the, oh, okay. the website, walterrichardson.com. Okay. Yeah. Do your songs reveal the way you live your life? Uh, that, that is one of my, um, uh, that right there is my, 
kind of like my motto mm-hmm. of why I've chose music and why I play music so that I can have a guide kind of like my own guide how to navigate so I try to write the songs in a way that are as sincere to myself as well so that when I'm singing it I'm not trying to be a character mm-hmm. that is not being a character uh, uh, far away from if anything it might be a place where I'm setting myself setting my sights for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh, one of the things that I noticed early on in entertainment is you can be a completely different character on stage right. than off stage and I never wanted there to be that great of a difference mm-hmm. between the two because right. I've seen I've seen some things that just aren't comfortable uh, in a person's personal life. Actors have to go through the same thing when they're right. playing completely different roles than what they are um, in real life and, and that kind of stuff. So I I tend to try to keep both of those in line because it just feels better. That question was from Cottonwood Stone. Oh, <laughs> she said. That, just, she, <laughs> she said that you 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 would know who asked the question without me saying who who asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the first questions she ever asked me. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it was funny. She was she was at a show. I was I was playing at Cookies from Home, and uh, and that was just a solo thing. And, yeah. and afterwards, she came up and she says, "Do your songs reflect how you're?" Uh, your way of life and everything. And I looked at it and go, mm, let's get some coffee. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> so we went and had coffee and, and our friendship has been uh, 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 a beautiful exchange of uh, information and journey and love and friendship and all of that. You know, that's one of the things that uh, I find has been a benefit with uh, playing music. It's just all the wonderful friendships mm-hmm. that have come out of it, you know, that yeah. being one of them. Yeah. Um, Tom, my buddy Tom Neeson, wanted, wants you to talk a little bit about the raspberry rhinoceros days. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying to know what that is. Raspberry rhinoceros is a uh, club that used to be in Scottsdale behind uh, in the Fifth Avenue shops area. Actually, it was more over, uh, there's another place called Anderson's Fifth Estate and everything and it was over in that uh, uh, by the canal is where the those areas. Okay. There's a tower in that uh, uh, there's a tower back there. I think it's still there, but there's a whole Mercado and all that stuff that's uh-huh. built up. Uh-huh. There's a little club in there called the uh, Raspberry Rhinoceros. And uh, there was a band that played there called the effects and that was uh uh francine brother uh brother um uh, francine reed's brother francine reed's brother uh i'm thinking i'm I'm spacing his name out anyway he was a drummer and uh and they were a reggae band they were actually the first reggae band that i saw here in arizona they were playing reggae before i was playing reggae but some reason that got switched around but that's um <laughs> water under the bridge it, uh the drummer's name was bucko reed so we would go in there um i think it was on weekends or a certain night that they uh, had reggae night and i'm telling you that place man it was wild it was just wild and there's so many things that happened in that club and in the parking lot. 
that <laughs> if <laughs> people knew about it, uh-huh. they'd have a whole different opinion of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we partied hard back there. And we laughed a lot. And we partied hard. And we laughed. Oh, my God. There was so much herb being smoked back there. And then people were doing other things, too. <laughs> There's a line in there's a line in one of Dylan's tunes. He says it's a lot of water under that bridge and a lot of other things too. <laughs> that applies to the raspberry rhinoceros. Uh, but I'll tell you one of the things, coolest things that happened. There's a lot of cool things that happened, but that's where I met Charles Barkley. No kidding. Yeah, when he came to town, I uh I went in there one night and and somebody that uh knew Charles knew me and he was in there with Charles. And I walked in, and Charles and and the guy comes around. He said, "Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! You gotta come over here and meet Charles Barkley." I said, "Oh, okay." And so I walk over to Charles and go, and and he's saying, "Charles, this is Walt Richardson. He's the man. He's the one right here. He's the man and everything." And Charles is looking at me like that, and I I shook his hand. I said, "Yeah, and uh, when you moved into here, you moved into my town." He goes, "Hey, I like that." <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I just crossed paths with him just recently at Grant's uh, uh, memorial. Oh, wow. Grant Woods Memorial. Yeah, we got a chance to talk uh, backstage real briefly. Uh, I, the guy kills me, man. He's just yeah. so he's so in the moment, so present, and at the same time, he can be so funny. Yeah. 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 Make it look easy. You know? Yeah. yeah. What... Um, what does the summer look like for you? Very interesting. Uh, the summer has a couple of things happening. Number one, there is a festival um, uh, uh, at uh, Watson Lake called the Imagination Fest that I will be a part of. Oh, that's in May, right? It's in end, May. End of May. Yeah, end of May. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm on the um, I'm on the lineup with that. There's a lot of great songwriters. One on of my that. favorite bands, Dawes. Yes, is playing that festival yeah there's another songwriter her name is katie pruitt that uh it's funny during COVID, for some reason she popped up on the on one of my youtube feeds and i've just listened to her songs and amazing songwriter she's on that i think um uh, who else winona or is it uh june carter or somebody yeah there's a whole lineup on this thing yeah people can check it out but it's the first annual one cool and uh, is that right? Can you say first annual? Or I think just... so. <laughs> it's the first. It's the first one. Maybe there'll be one next year. Yeah, right. Right. And uh, I'm happy to be on it. Yeah, that'll uh, be cool. Yeah. So that's happening. The other part of it is the CD or the EP will probably be out, and then we'll start doing all setting up all of the. Uh, uh, the activities with the pledges that some of the people put in when we did the uh, uh, drive fundraiser, uh, fundraiser. So there's people who sponsored at different levels, right? And so now we can get moving on having the private parties uh, in their uh, gotcha. spaces that right. they bought the levels that they bought at, and uh, that's uh, so that's that's what's happening. And then it's um, going to be downtime from the Tempe. Um, Center for the Arts from the open mic night because we take a break over the summer. Uh, we end the end of uh, April and we start back up in September. So this will give me a chance to just kind of cool down, yeah, and uh, and and refocus, re-energize. Um, I've got 
another grand nephew or grand niece coming into the world. I have a nephew that's getting married over the summer. Uh, so there's some some things like that happening. Yeah. And then, as I was telling you earlier on break when we were having a chat outside, uh, there's gigs that just kind of pop up out of nowhere that yeah. I'm looking forward to being able to uh, uh, be a part of. Um, kind of started down a new path <laughs> the other day. I, I spoke at the uh, Unity of Mesa Church as the gave the talk of the of the service and I'd never done that before. And so I'm open to having that kind of experience uh, more with people, um, music and chat, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's the summer so far. Love it. You know, (laughs) I think it's, you know, it's easy to get kind of caught up, you know, in, in the schedule and and to be so busy that, You don't even really see the light of day for a minute. Exactly. So I think it's important to set aside time to recharge the battery a little bit. You know, that was one of the uh, the aspects of quarantine that uh, was a blessing in disguise for me is um, all the gigs went away, mm-hmm. and with that happening, I got a chance to see the hamster wheel that I was on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with thinking that I had to gig that much. Mm-hmm. And the time away was a great time to decompress from all of that and now uh, fall in love with the passion of music mm-hmm. without having to, with giving myself time uh, to do that. So now going back out, I'm realizing it's important to have that decompression mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so I'm not going to be filling the calendar up with a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I will be ma- be aware of that. So mm-hmm. it increases the effectiveness of the shows when you're doing it that way. Right. Right. Well, uh, that being said, I, I do hope that we get to share the stage again. Well, I'm looking forward to another experience at the, at the MIM. Yeah, let's you do know, that. You know, set it up like you did before. And I am there. <laughs> I was just at the MIM. Uh, in February, they did a Bob Marley tribute, and they had me come in and play. And it, it was over the two-day uh, weekend of his birthday. Cool. So I got a chance to work with the staff of the MEM again. Uh, it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. man, I'm telling you. And, you know, it's funny. Arizona has all has so many best-kept secrets. Yeah. And the MEM is one of them. For sure. And it's sitting right here. Yeah. And there's people here that don't even understand what it is. And I was one of those. I mean, Hans Olsen told me about it. And it was still two years or so before I even went into the place. Yeah. Because the way he described it is, you know, it's a it's a place that has all these guitars hanging around and everything. I said, well, I've been in places where a lot of guitars <laughs> are hanging around. Why would I right. want to go there? Right. Uh, but you can't um, you can't describe it. It's, yeah. it. You have to be there. And then yeah. you realize... Oh, I know what he meant, but yeah. you can't. It's like trying to take a, a picture of the Grand Canyon right. and, and capture the awe right. in that snapshot. It's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah. No. Well, Walt, I appreciate you doing this, taking some time and chatting. It's been a real pleasure to, to get to know you over the years, and, um, and uh, I, I'm inspired by you right. and, and the work that you've put in and, and the, 
the legacy that you have created. Oh, thank you very much. I just feel like I'm uh, trying to uh, remember the tune and play it in tune. <laughs> Keeping the guitar tune is basically right. the main focus it's the, right it's there. It's a lifelong <laughs> thing, right? But, Ever since that first guitar. Right. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention real quick is to see how, as to tell you, uh, I'm equally as proud of, of you and the journey and your musical uh, accomplishments and especially uh, the musical preservation that you put together with uh, Lowell Canyon and, and, and your projects. And and the first time that we crossed paths, which was at... Rulabula. <laughs> Rulabula. Yeah, a thousand years ago. <laughs> a thousand years ago at the open mic night. Yeah, when, yeah. My open mic night. I was terrified. You, <laughs> I was terrified. <laughs> you just came to town yeah, and, yeah. and everything. Now look at you. <laughs> look at what you did. Still man. terrified. <laughs> Still feeling new in town? Right, right, right. <laughs> well, well I, I appreciate the kind words. Thank well, you. Thank you for sharing uh, uh, you know, me with all of your audience and everything and all the people on Facebook that uh, listen to this podcast. Um, uh, I hope you all enjoy it and that it brings some kind of inspiration uh, to you all to follow your passion because it, 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 it makes it a very rich and fulfilling life and you may you may go through what's called some up and downs but you you will never have any regrets because it, it just it feels it makes you feel like you mm. and and that's a that's a great way to feel on this planet especially right now yeah you know? we definitely need more of that oh think. yeah you oh know? yeah oh yeah thanks walt you're welcome we will share a stage soon okay <laughs> just give me a call <laughs> All right.